Hello, and welcome to the Unbossed Leadership Podcast, the podcast that shows you how to put a smile on the faces of your employees every Monday morning. For us, Unbossing is the journey from command and control to inspire, coach, and trust. On this podcast, we have conversations with unbossed leaders as they share their unbossing stories, insights, and lessons that can help you and your company be successful in your own unbossed journeys. Stay tuned. Here we are. I see the message. You are live on LinkedIn. Unbossed leadership live session with Mauro Porcini. Now, um, yeah, to all of you, uh, please tell us from where you are joining. I'm sitting in Brussels, Belgium. Mauro, I guess, are you, are you at Casa Mauro? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I love the definition. Yeah, I'm in Casa Porcini, so it's more inclusive of the full family. My wife, the three, the three dogs and the baby. <laughs> I see, I see. So that is a bit outside of, of New York City. I, 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 I No, this one is actually, I am in Manhattan right now. So I have a house in the Hamptons, but today I am in the apartment in Manhattan. So yeah, home in Manhattan. All right. And already you make me dream and uh, you inspire me, which is a, a typical thing to do for you. So please, all listeners, tell us from where you are joining Mauro, uh, all of LinkedIn knows you. Uh, please let me shortly introduce myself. I'm Thomas Hubuch. I uh, was 15 years long the CEO of Sucre Tirlemont, which is a European sugar producer with around uh, 10 factories around Europe and uh, around 2,000 uh, employees. So I used to be a supplier of yours, uh, Mauro, and a very happy supplier <laughs> <laughs> with uh, food, uh, with sugar, but also with functional food ingredients. What I'm doing today is I'm the founder and CEO of The Unbossing Company, which is a business consulting company. And we are transforming companies from a leadership style of command and control towards a new leadership style, which we call inspire, coach, and trust. And the whole journey, which takes quite a couple of years, we call an unbossing journey. Why? Because for us, the boss is the symbol of command and control. And now, Mauro, there are many reasons why ah <laughs> one of them arrived <laughs> <laughs> i i know them from instagram <laughs> they they're always with me but i was in the design center in uh, we have a design center in soho in manhattan and i walked back in doing a video call while i was walking and then i literally stepped in i connected and the dogs are realizing now that I'm here. So usually they are on the desk with me. So the first one arrived, but during the live, we may have two more arriving. So excuse me in advance if, I, if you see dogs <laughs> flying on the desk during the live. <laughs> so they, they are getting acquainted to the situation. So. I hear another one coming. <laughs> oh, the other one. Okay. 
Yeah, in the meantime, oh, wow. So it will not take long until they are all there. I, I see already how that works there. <laughs> they're here and they arrive. Yeah. They, anyway. They're usually when I do podcasts or video calls from home, that happens with my two daughters. Um, you know, <laughs> you know, you know also how that is. I know, so I know. Way, yeah, I see Shelly joining us from Northern Ontario, Deborah from Ghana, Cristiano from Italy. And Wonderful. So we are all over the world. Now, Mauro, why did I have to buy and read your book? I tell you why, because I realized quite quickly, even before reading your book, that you are not only a designer of products and of customer experiences. For me, you are also a designer of organizations. And by the way, this is the most difficult part with our client companies in our unbossing journeys is not even the leadership part. It's the part where they would have to adapt their organizational model. And Mauro, that brings me to a podcast I recently, just last week, heard with um, Indra Noy. And that podcast was republished by Harvard Business Review. In fact, the podcast was from 2015. And she was talking about the time when design thinking was introduced at PepsiCo. And Mauro, there is this fabulous part in the end of the podcast where they are asking her, okay, listen, Indra, this is all fascinating, but how in the world did you overcome the resistance, the skeptics within PepsiCo, which are typical for a US American corporations? And what she says, the first thing she says is, are you know what? Everybody loved Mauro. Everybody, even the biggest skeptics. And I will never forget, I sit in my car, I hear this part of the podcast, yeah, I can imagine. And that brings me to practically already into the middle of it, the inspiring part uh, of what we plan to talk about today and the storytelling part. But I would love to hear from you in your own words, Mauro, how, what was design at PepsiCo before you came and what is design at PepsiCo today? Look, I'm going to give you first um, a very synthetic answer and then we can elaborate on it. But before I came, it was a lever in the hands of marketing. <laughs> After I came, and in all these years, and not just because of me, obviously, but because of many designers with me and many marketers and R&D people and people in other functions that embraced that idea and co-drove that idea with me, is culture. You know, from a lever to grow a business to part of the culture of the organization. Now, there is a major difference between seeing a, 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 something like design as a lever versus culture. If it's a lever... You can use it or not use it. You can be like, you know what? 
I can design my products, I can design my packaging, I can design my communication um, in a certain way. I can also avoid that, doing that. I can grow through pricing, through the scale of distribution, to the brute power of patents that, and barriers to entry of that kind, and so on and so forth. If instead design is part of the culture, no matter if you grow, your business, you become more profitable, you increase your top line and bottom line. If you don't do it by creating value for people, by creating products, experiences, solutions of any kind that are meaningful to people, you're not going to be happy as a leader, as an organization. You're going to be seeking your mind to have a mediocre product, an average experience, and in your portfolio, in your company, no matter if you're growing the business. Now, this 20 years ago, you know, these companies are here to make money, right? And to grow. So a lot of people in, you know, in the past could be like, you know what? And so what? I have an average product, but it's super profitable. I'm making tons of money. I don't need this product to be extraordinary. Today, that's not working anymore. Because today, if your product, experience, branding, the overall solution to people's needs and wants is not extraordinary at 360 degrees, sooner or later, somebody else will come and will fix the problem on your behalf with their own products and brands and, and their, their, uh, with, with competitive solutions uh, that are going to create problems to your company. Why today is possible and in the past it was not? Because today we live in a world where the barriers to entry made of scale of production, communication, and distribution we used to have are crumbling down under the winds of globalization, digitization, new technologies. So the man or woman of the street can decide to go and compete with the giant brands because they can produce at a lower cost. They can go straight to the consumers, to the end users with e-commerce channel to sell them products and through social media to communicate, storytell those products, you know, using a word that you love and I love too, storytelling those products. So uh, this was not possible 20 years ago. 20 years ago, having an extraordinary solution was a nice to have, was one of the levers that you could use, but it was not indispensable. Today is necessary. And therefore, you need to move from design as a lever to grow the business to design as a sculpture to build sustainable uh, competitive value and advantage for your company in the long run, in the long run, in the long term. By the way, this is not going to be just value for the company. It's going to be value for the society uh, out there, for the world out there. And this is fantastic for us as human beings, not professionals, but human beings, consumers, people buying those products uh, is a fantastic moment in time. And it's just the beginning. Uh, we live in what I like to call the age of excellence. Either you produce something great or again, sooner or later, somebody will come and will do it on your behalf as a company. We will, we consumers, people of the world, will benefit of this. Oh, absolutely. And I do know American corporations, Mauro, and I do know, and I have been knowing PepsiCo since 
quite a couple of years, even before the Mauro Borgini era. And I know they have always been excellent in, in, in certain parts uh, of their business, but I also know uh, the rigor in which usually America, with which usually American companies are steered. I know uh, the bunch of analysts uh, over there watching on the forecasts, uh, watching on the quarterly figures. By the way, congratulations on the recently published quarterly figures. Amazing performance once again. And now I, I feel, and I don't feel that only here in the live sessions, I feel that also in your book, Mauro, that you are a free spirit. In, in Germany, we would call you a Freigeist, a free spirit. And now I'm really curious, how does a free spirit like you enter a company like PepsiCo, a corporation like PepsiCo, with this message, Mauro, which means, by the way, that this is not only a corner and a certain function in the company, which will be tremendously transformed, but this, your message goes over production facilities, even to supply chain, if you really think of it. How did that work? And was that only possible from your point of view with this congenial relationship with Indra Noi? Look, Indra played a very important role as Ramon Laguarta right now, the CEO of PepsiCo since the, the end of 2018, is playing an important role. CEOs always play important roles because they have the ability to sponsor a change of culture, to drive it. And, and these changes of culture, they are progressive, they're incremental, they take time, they don't solve itself from night to day. Uh, and so, and, and especially if it's a culture of innovation, is a ongoing change that will never end. There is not a beginning at the end. You know, you, you keep evolving the culture of the organization towards this kind of uh, innovative mindset, always the intention between productivity on one side and change, innovation, uh, meaningful innovation, human-centered innovation on the other. So CEOs are really, really important. But then the body of the company is extremely important too. And I use a strategy that was very practical and pragmatic that I developed over the years at 3M in my previous company. Sure. And then it became a sort of playbook when I joined uh, uh, PepsiCo. And essentially, first of all, it's very important to try to deliver results very quickly. Mm -hmm. They don't need to be perfect. You don't need to show the full value you can bring to the table right away, but you need to show some form of progress as soon as possible. To do that, I uh, essentially mapped two variables when I joined the company. On one side, the projects where I thought I could show visible value of a tangible change in a short time frame. So what are those projects where by getting involved, by changing perspective, by doing things differently, I can land in market something visible quickly. Or even if I was not landing something in market, I could build some form of value in some areas very visible to the company that the company really care about. As an example, 
all the work that we do with our customers, the Marriotts, the Targets, the grow, uh, you know, the 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 the, the, the fast, uh, food service channels on one side and the traditional retailers on the other, uh, how can I help in the conversation of supplier to customer, PepsiCo to customer, uh, transforming more and more that conversation from a financial transaction to a partnership? bringing in design thinking, innovation, strategic thinking of a different kind, not the one those both companies were used to. That's an example where we didn't land anything specific in market in the first year, but in that first year, we're able to show our own company, PepsiCo, how we were adding value to those conversations and our customers will look at us in a different way because design was involved. So again, identifying what are those potential proof points that I can build very quickly. And then on the other axis, literally there were two axes, on the other axis, I will put the people assigned to those projects, starting with the leaders, so the business leaders, and then a variety of other people in the organization that were part, key stakeholders in the project. But again, the business leader was the essential one. And I will try to understand if the person had the characteristics to disrupt with me, to be an innovator to be what I later on, I mean, this, I developed this when I was at 3M, so already at 3M, towards the end of my 10 years in the company, I, I call these people the co-conspirators, people that were willing to conspire for change <laughs> with me. And so when I joined the company, we identified those projects that were low-hanging fruits, projects where I could show value quickly, with the right leaders on them. I could have had projects that were really, really good where I could show value quickly, but I didn't have the right partner there. I didn't have the right business leader there. Those were not the top priority because if you don't have the right partners, you're going to spend all your time in trying to convince this person, this leader in drive change. And at the end, it was going to be Anyway, very difficult to land something different in the short term in a very efficient and effective way. Uh, and so, yeah, that has been the strategy. Start to deliver results. At the beginning, will be one or two, then three or four. The more you grow those results, the more you story tell the hell out of them. You tell the stories. Yeah. And I did it many times using my own personal social media, my LinkedIn channel, my Instagram, my Facebook. Uh, I built as soon as possible a PepsiCo design Instagram account. We created a website. We started to publish every year an internal book of all the projects we were, we were generating. At the beginning, these books were very tiny books, you know, with few projects. But again, we were publishing them, printing them, and, sh and sharing them with all the key stakeholders. So, and so we were telling the story over and over again, conferences, articles, but not just the conference and the article, but making sure that in a way or the other, they will reach back the employees of PepsiCo. I, I use a lot of external communication platforms to tell internal stories to our own employees. And so after a while, people started to take notice. And so this is very important. Proof points quickly, tell stories about them, make sure that people are aware of it, and the more people will arrive to increase the scale of what you're doing. The more you do that, the more proof points, the more credibility. At that point, you can start to talk about the enablers of those proof points, culture, this idea of love, 
respect, curiosity, optimism. You know, I had the list of the characteristics of these innovators. I had this uh, idea of what an innovator should do and how this innovator should think before PepsiCo. And, and I'm not saying this now after 11 years at PepsiCo because it's nice to say. They were written down in articles and papers that you can still find online that I wrote or interviewed that I had before the time of PepsiCo. But when I joined the company, I was not here talking about the importance of love to drive business because I, I didn't have enough credibility to do it. First, mm -hmm. land results. After you land the results, you show the credibility, you're like, well, the enablers of this have been these kind of characteristics that are so important. At that point, people will be like, wait a second, these results are really interesting. Obviously, they come from a different kind of culture. It seems that this culture is working. Let me, let me know more about what's going on in that team, in that organization. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love your expression, co-conspirators. <clears throat> and it's amazing what we uh, expression we use in unbossing journeys is circle of believers. <clears throat> What do you use? I, I lost you for a second. <laughs> we say, we, we, <laughs> yeah. um, wish you good health, Mauro. Uh, we, we use the expression, the circle of believers. Circle of uh, believers. I love it. Beautiful. And uh, Mauro, when talking about uh, your development, it reminds me of another fabulous uh, piece of storytelling in your book. And that is at the beginning of your career at 3M. And there you come into the office of your boss then, and you are very euphoric. You say, listen, I talk with all the functional and business leaders about my vision and how we should do it. And they are in, they fully support it. And, and I, will never, I will never forget reading that because I saw it in front of me. Your, your boss sitting at his desk and said, Mauro, they are lying to you. They are, they are they're they're all lying to you. <laughs> <laughs> and and what I want to say with that, and that is now my guess, at that point of time, you were then still... Um, what did change? What, what did you learn out of that experience? Let me put it like that. It was a very important moment in my life, in my professional life. Actually, not just professional, also private. Um, because I was having all these meetings, pitching this idea of design to the organization. And again, in my case, it was design. I could be there pitching a new finance approach or a new HR you know, culture, whatever you pitch. Because I had a lot of passion, because somehow I was eloquent and I knew what I was talking about, and probably because of my Italian accent, the fact that design is fun to talk about, you know, because of a variety of different variables, um, usually people would react very well to what I was pitching. They would love it. They, and probably they were having fun in that hour talking about style and design and Italy and blah, blah, blah. That was my life. You know, I was 27, 28. Yeah. And, and then this executive sponsor of, uh, of mine, this EVP of the consumer business of, of 3M, uh, opened my eyes. He told me, 
they are all lying to you, as you just Thomas, as you just said. And 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 then he he went on and he explained what what he meant. He told me, look, imagine you are in a gallery, in an art gallery, and you have a beautiful painting in front of you, and you really, really, really love that painting, and you have plenty of money in your pocket. What do you do? You buy the painting, right, Mauro? Well. You, Mauro, and Design, you are one of the paintings in the 3M art gallery. But there are many other paintings. There is the next HR project. There is the investment on a plant. There is many other things. And I know that those teams that you talk to are all buying other paintings. They're not buying the Mauro painting, the Design painting. And I know, I know Dr. Nozari, the EVP, knew because... He gave them the budget. He knew how much money they had and where they were spending them. That, again, opened my eyes. Why? Because I realized that I was totally unaware of the situation I was living. I was living in the belief that the people in front of me were co-conspirators. They were people that wanted to work with me. And instead, they were not. And this happens all the time when you try to push something new for different kinds of reasons. As an example, because they're afraid, they're, you know, that they know very well that you have a big sponsor behind your shoulder. So it's not about pushing back on Mauro, it's pushing back on the EVP of the consumer business. Or maybe because they want to be nice. You know, there is this young guy full of passion, they don't want to disappoint him. Or maybe because they actually are giving you some some kind of signal that they don't like what you're talking about, but you're too in love with your ideas to yeah. see that actually people may eventually not like your ideas as you do. So for a reason or the other, often we find ourselves in these kind of situations. And so after that, I define a new, a, a new approach to these kind of meetings. Every time somebody will tell me, I love what you're proposing. I tell them, okay, let's do it together. Give me the money. Do something. Some form of sacrifice, of commitment. I call it sacrifice, a commitment to be part of this. It could be resources, financial resources, people. It could be just a visible commitment in front of the company to be part of this. But in a way or the other, you need to be part of this. And, And so if you do that, the most of the times, the most of the people will drop off. They won't be with you. And this is perfectly fine because what you need to do in that phase is mostly to identify who are those few people that are going to be with you. And usually, in average, there are 10% of the uh, population, one person out of 10. This come, you know, statistically, this is what happened to me, but in general, this is... This comes from plenty of data that we have about adoption uh, in the consumer market, about the curve of adoption of new products um, for people out there, for consumers, customers, people out there. We know that people willing to try something completely new before anybody else tried that thing are 2 to 3% of the worldwide population. People coming immediately after, uh, the early adopters immediately after the innovators are around 8 9%. We know, therefore, that around 11 12% of people are the ones willing to try a new product, a new brand, a new solution before anybody else. The same thing happens when you need to adopt a new culture inside an organization. So the message that 
I gave to myself before anybody else, but then over the years to all my teams, it's been this. If you find a lot of pushback, a lot of rejection, it's fine. It means that you are proposing something disruptive and something new. If you find <laughs> nine people out of 10 that are not with you, it's part of the game. Don't get demotivated. It's just the game that you are playing. Actually, if you find too many people with you, it means that you're not really pushing the boundaries. Is really, you're not really changing too much. And and therefore, or or they're lying to you. The other the other scenario is they're lying to you. So you need to identify the ones that are really with you. The so famous co-conspirators. That really changed my life because I've been so much more effective at doing what I was so, supposed to do because I found those people that really wanted to disrupt and change with me versus wasting time with people that had no intention of changing anything, no matter they were telling you eventually that they were with you. <laughs> Thanks, Mauro. And just to be clear, when you said you found these people, uh, that doesn't mean you found these people only within your own tribe or your own function. You found these people in finance. You found them in the sales function. I guess you found them as well in production and supply chain. Is yeah. that correct? Yeah, and look, yes, absolutely. That's uh, I'm referring to all the other functions because in mine it was easy. It was easy for me because I built my functions from scratch. So I hire the people in my team. So of course I hire the people that I love. It's, it may be not the case for uh, other people that go in a company and they find teams already there reporting to them. So if that was my case, I, I, I would have needed to find them even within my team. But in my case, it was mostly outside of the team and it was literally at the beginning me hunting for those people then mm -hmm. over the years you know reaching more credibility and more you know inside the organization a different kind of seat at the table inside the company i've been able also to influence the selection of some of these people in the key projects or anyway making sure that the right people with the right mindset are assigned to the right projects this is key and and You know, that's why many years ago when I was still at 3M, I came up with this long list of characteristics of these innovators that then I started to pressure test and validate over the years. And 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 and, and at the end became the list of the characteristics of the unicorns, the people in love with people, as I call the, these innovators that you can find in my book. Uh, I, I wrote it down because I wanted to be really clear starting with myself on what were those characteristics so that I could spot those people in the teams I, I was working with. And later on, I could ask the organization, the leaders in the organization, to make sure that people with this kind of traits would be assigned to those projects. This is key. Without those people, we go nowhere. And I keep seeing this over and over and over again, one project after the other, in my experience in PepsiCo. Uh, you know, I had so many examples. One day I will write a book about this, of projects that were really struggling. You know, we were having difficulties in some projects or maybe in some business units, in some regions of the world. And then within even my team, I change a person, I put the right person in that project, in that business unit, in that region, and boom, 
everything changed. Not because of just this person, obviously. You know, this person then has other people around her and around him. But the person become the catalyst of that yeah. change and is able to identify other people like him and like her, other co-conspirators, to drive that change. So, yes, on one side, it's not just about one person, but on the other side, it is all about the person as a catalyst to unlock the power and the potential of tons of other persons as well. Yeah, yeah thank you so much, Mauro. By the way, this is one thing where, and when I was still studying um, business administration, I could never have imagined what influence single individuals can have on huge corporations uh, as you say as catalysts yeah not at the people who as the people who do it all and know it all but really as catalysts and i would also like to ask all our listeners you have heard mauro talking about building co-conspirators uh, you have heard other expressions like circle of believers Uh, what are your experiences and do you agree on, 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 on this method, which is, yeah, in the case of Mao, extremely successful. Now, Mao, you talked about the unicorns and uh, obviously the, 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 this figure of the unicorns goes through your book from A to Z. And you also talk about certain attributes which these unicorns have and i did read several times your chapter unicorns are charismatic storytellers now i would like to tell you why this is so fascinating for me because i have to do with to deal with leaders on a daily basis who are intellectually brilliant mauro They know their business in and out. They have an intellectual grip on the business, but also an intellectual grip on communication towards customers, but also towards their people, which is, I would say, flawless. And now it comes. They are unable, simply unable, to inspire their people a single bit, despite the fact that they may have, and I'm convinced they often have, the right idea for the strategy, the right idea and even plan for what should be done, they are not able to inspire. And I would like to know if you yourself know such kind of leaders or, or, or know the phenomenon I am talking about. And if you agree with me that this missing magical part is charismatic storytelling. Look, yes, I know leaders like this. So the positive message is that you can become a successful leader even if you don't have this. Even though if you have it, it's a superpower. Now, You know, when I, I listed the characteristics of all these unicorns, the 24 different characteristics, I always um, make sure that people understand that there is no person in the planet that has them all to the extreme. The, the, the person that has them all to the extreme 
is a unicorn that lives in the world of ideas. Plato would say, you know, he lives there with the gods. So there is nobody, <laughs> essentially, you know, unless you know some god here on the on um, on planet Earth. And and so the value of these characteristics is that you should spend the rest of your life trying to get better in all of them. And with full awareness about the one that you have, <coughs> I'm sorry, um, more developed naturally, because you were born with some of these characteristics, you know, more developed than others in instinctively. So on those, double down, because they're already your superpower. So become the best in the world at that. So often we talk about investing in your gaps to get better. But we, and, and that's an important dimension, but it's so important also to invest in what you're really good to become the best in the planet on this. And then, you know, it's about investing in the ones that, that you're not really good at to get better. So now going back to storytelling, you know, storytelling is a mix of the ability of um, mastering the power of words with the ability of reading your audience and understanding with your art, heart, even before than your mind, what they care about. Now, when you are in a, for instance, like us right now in front of a screen, and I don't know exactly who is listening to us, obviously it's more difficult than when you are in a meeting room, when you are on a stage of a conference where is the good storytellers are really able to synchronize their soul with the soul of the people in front of them. They look in your eyes. They, they are so focused on trying to capture how you are reacting emotionally to what the storyteller is saying. They just feel it, right? So the ability to tell stories in a way that is relevant to the people you have in front of you and therefore the ability of reading these people, reading a room, have empathy, caring about them, is essential. And then there are specific techniques also in your body language, in the way you move. And so what I'm trying to say is that there are things that you can do to improve your ability to storytell. Uh, you know, for instance, working with coaches that, that, that work with acting, the ability, like I remember I, I never did an acting course, but I did a, a diction course when I joined PepsiCo that, as you can hear from my accent, didn't really work out. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it was what I remember very, very well of, of those few lessons is, is something that had nothing to do with diction, but it was about body language. And uh, the teacher, the coach, will tell me, uh, for instance, when you you are in front of a person, if you talk with your chin up, you're positioning yourself in a in, in you know like if you're superior to the people in front of you. If you go down, all of a sudden you are more welcoming. You're warmer. Now, combine that's an example of body language with specific words that you choose, a specific tonality, a specific speed of how you're talking, and all of a sudden, you can either make the person in front of you with exactly the same content, the same message, uncomfortable because you're right, arrogant, and you're imposing, or really comfortable and ready to give you feedback because you have a different kind of 
body language. Now, by the way, there is not a good or wrong. You may be in, in, in moments where you actually need to exercise some form of authority because you need people that eventually push back for no reason or to just follow you. There are moments instead where it's all about getting feedback because you may be really confident about what the story you're telling, but we all have blind spots. We all know that we make mistakes. So there are moments where you really need the feedback. If you go there with a chin up, with a voice, you know, very loud and everything, people may be afraid to give you feedback, not comfortable giving you feedback. So mm -hmm. I just gave it a few examples that you can, te you can teach and you can learn. So on one side, a, a little bit of this can be learned. You can get better. In the book, I talk about the importance of training. It's, it's been proven over and over and over again. For instance, IQ, intellectual quotient. You know, people that are born with a very high IQ, if they don't practice, if they don't keep learning, they may be beaten by people that were grown, uh, born with a lower IQ, but yeah. they, through practice and learning, eh, they develop over the years a higher level of IQ. This uh, in soccer, you can be born Maradona or whatever you know soccer player you love, but if you don't practice, somebody that is born without those kind of skills can become better than you over the years. Now, the problem is that if you are not born Maradona, you can practice as much as you want, but you will never become Maradona. You can play in the Premier League, in the Serie A in Italy, eventually if you really, really practice and if you have a good base, but you will never be Maradona, Ronaldo. And if you, if you are a leader in PepsiCo, in Procter Gamble, in one of these big companies on your startup, you want to be Maradona, right? In everything, in every single characteristics of the mm -hmm. unicorns. Mm -hmm. And this is where other people come into place. Understand where you're weak, and build super teams to help you fill in those gaps. Mm -hmm. So if you're not a great storyteller, surround yourself with few amazing storytellers that will help you telling those stories. A little bit writing them for you. So, you know, a component of it, of it is that. And then mostly by telling them on your behalf, making clear that is your vision, is you are the leader. I met many leaders that are extremely shy over the years, from big corporations to mostly smaller companies, startups, places where there is not somebody on top of you deciding if you're going to be the boss or not because you build the company. Yeah. And so often those people were so smart, they were able to put other people on their sides to be the storytellers. But obviously the vision was co-crafted by with these leaders or entirely crafted by these leaders behind the scenes. So again, power of training and improving on one side personally, and then the power of team to fill the gaps that we all have because nobody's perfect and we all have gaps. Thank you so much, Mauro, because it, 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 it gives me hope and it also gives hope to many leaders I have talked to because in your book, Uh, very interestingly, you uh, call this storytelling talent a gift. And of course, it sounds wonderful in a way, but it could also, it could make some leaders hopeless uh, because it's obviously, yeah, a gift is not a skill which I could uh, uh, develop. Um, 
and, and, and I think we do agree that without storytelling, inspiring leadership without storytelling doesn't work. And so I'm very happy that uh, uh, that you gave these constructive remarks. By the way, Mauro, you are also saying in your book, you have been a passionate storyteller for all your life. And when when somebody writes a book, which is in principle a business book, but it reads like a novel, uh, <laughs> then it's it's very clear that this is the case. But you also say, Mauro, it's not been always easy. Uh, you say, in fact, it's been quite complex um, from time to time. Could you tell us a bit about these struggles and how you overcame them? Yeah, look, as speaking has been always something that I loved. Sharing what I was discovering in the world has been always something that I was loving as well. Uh, and I was doing it both through speeches, but also through photography, through art, in a variety of different ways. So using different kinds of media. Somehow this came a little bit naturally. You know, I was doing it. I was good at drawing. I was good at talking. But I think it also came because of my parents in two different ways. On one side, I was inspired by the ability of my mother to write. Her passion was writing, literature, uh, her articulation of her ideas, how eloquent she was. And then I was inspired by my father and his art and his passion for painting. And and, and he gave me a, a camera when I was very young and I started to take pictures wow. and he loved pictures as well and all these things. I was also inspired by both of them in an opposite way because they were both insanely shy still today and not social at all not many friends never wanted to go out but they were inspired by people that were really good at public speaking in television you know the uh, people with great culture and very eloquent in television were their idols not you know the shallow celebrities that sometimes we see you know today in social media or actually even back then in television but they were inspired by that. So probably when I was growing up, I really don't know. I'm saying this because we've been talking about the gift, right? Yes. I don't know if I was born eloquent or if I saw that my parents were so shy but so mesmerized by people who were able to war, uh, to talk in public that I forced myself to develop this muscle even though by DNA it was not part of my family. Because, by the way, we're not just my parents, but also their family members. So I'm and I'm saying this once again, because maybe you never know. You really don't know. Maybe it was literally from the very beginning working on this to show to myself that I could do something that my parents were dreaming of and they could make them proud that helped me having this kind of, let's call it, gift uh, over the years. So uh, that has been extremely important for me. But then practicing, practicing, practicing. And so at the beginning, I will beg uh, professors in university just out of school to give me the possibility to do a lesson about what I was doing with my company. Even before 3M, I had an agency. I was participating in a competition of design. I was trying to put myself out there to tell these kind of stories. At a certain point, I start to get more and more visibility in my field. 
And at a certain point, it's not anymore Mauro Porcini, the personal, you know, the, 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 the just the individual posting in social media. But all of a sudden, me being an executive of a company and me being just Mauro, the Mauro, of, you know, a friend of my friend, we start to become the same thing. So anything I do in my private social media at a certain point, I'm not saying things just as Mauro. I'm saying things as the CDO of 3M, of Pepsi yes. later on. So that was a big change in my life because I needed to decide if to just close up and be, make, you know, make my social private and be like, okay, this is my private life. And then, or merge the two because yes. design for me is my life, is my passion. I decided to merge the two. So I'm telling you, all, I'm telling you all this story to tell you that at the beginning, it was just intuitive. I love what I do. And I'm going to talk about what I do. I'm going to tell you when I do a trip or when I do have a dinner with my friends, but I'm also telling you about this amazing project that I'm very proud about. Step-by-step, mm -hmm. step, more and more visibility, I started to get a lot of traction. So it was social media, but it was conferences. I was, you know, interviews start to, to come, magazines, televisions, this and that. And I started to get a lot of visibility. And, and at that point, the game started to become more difficult because at, that, at a certain point, People are like, well, but this guy is out there for the company or is, is out there for himself? Is storytelling <laughs> his personal brand or is doing it for the company? And, and, and inside me, I was like, fuck, you know, I'm not doing it for anybody. I'm doing it because I have a lot of fun doing it. But obviously, you can't keep going just with the naivete. At a certain point, you need to understand, okay, what is the value for my personal brand? What is the value for the company? Should I stop doing what I'm doing? Should I do a disservice to the company, a disservice to myself? So long story short, I realized that what I was doing, first of all, was fun. It was the reason why I was doing it. And that's why probably I have hundreds of thousands of followers across multiple platforms because I did it for a very long time. And I did it because I, I was just enjoying it, doing it. I didn't do it too for the followers. I didn't do it for the company. I didn't do it for my personal brand. I was just having fun doing it. And I still have fun today publishing. It's a lot of work. I do it completely by myself. Nobody writes my con content. So I have fun doing it. So that's so important. But again, I needed to figure out what was the impact on me and the company. And I realized that actually it was great. I was humanizing a big corporation. I was also making sure that the people of the corporation would understand how important it is to be a 360 degrees human being, you know, uh, the importance of work-life balance, the fact that I can be a successful executive doing great projects, but I can also have a life. You know, we yeah. often talk about the importance of work-life balance. There are all these... Oh, here's, here is a third dog, Leone. Oh, wow. Hello. <laughs> it arrived. So, so we, we have we, them all together. So we, we talk about the importance of work-life balance, and then you see these people working 24-7 and not having a life and destroying eventually their families, not having friends. And, yeah. and this is not okay because you're not, you know, this is not a role model for our own organization, for our own associates and employees and for the people out there. And this is important ethically. You need to role model this because this is the right thing to do for people in society. But it's important for the company too. 
You're going to get people that are more happy, more balanced, with better mental health. They're going to deliver great value for the company too. You don't do that for that reason. But there is also this beautiful collateral effect for your company. So again, it, it became tricky at a certain point to balance this exposure and some questions about why I was doing things with the fact that I was delivering value to the company, there was value for me, and there was a lot of fun in doing it. It lasts just a few years, and then the company got it. You know why the company got it? Because I could have left PepsiCo many years before, if I, you know, and I could have done the same with 3M after a few years of successes. And as a mercenary, moving from one company to the other and yes. make more and more money and just go after the next job, the company understood instead that was there really to create value for the organization. Uh, and, and why? how do you do that? You do, it, you do that not in social media. You do that in the office, in the exactly. meetings, by all the time, all the time, pushing for what is right for the company to grow the business. And ultimately, in my case as a designer, what is right for the company is what is right for the people out there. Because I profoundly believe that if I create extraordinary value for people, purposeful brands, uh, meaningful products, I am building the most powerful competitive advantage for my company. Now, if you combine these two dimensions, the company understanding I'm not there just for you know, getting the right rating at the end of the year to get my promotion or my salary increase, then there to be long-term value. And if they are, the people out there understanding I'm doing it in an authentic way because they really care and they keep talking about this and my story is consistent and they keep amplifying the message over and over again, at a certain point, people many years ago stopped, you know, questioning why I was doing that. They saw the value and they doubled down in this and they helped me so much. Our corporate communication team is so supportive today in everything we're doing. When I created the podcast, is a podcast, you know, my podcast is a PepsiCo podcast, totally funded by the organization with support of corporate shoes, communication. Right? In your shoes, yes. So that's an example of this company really empowering me to do these things. I, I wrote a book, it's a personal book, but I had the former CEO of three, uh, PepsiCo in Ranui and the current CEO of PepsiCo, Ramon Laguarta, writing yeah. Uh, the introduction to the to the book we just published yesterday, literally yesterday, this new book we read solid. That is a company book once again. So the the company is totally embracing this idea of human centered storytelling and communication that comes from your heart, and even the um, imperfection of how I communicate. My, you know, if you read my LinkedIn post, we are in LinkedIn. Often you will find some grammar mistake here and there. Uh -huh. I, I, I do it on purpose. Not a mistake. I do the mistakes because my English is not perfect. But yeah. I, I, I don't try to have the perfect, perfect post because actually I want people to realize that they're written by me and they're not decided by a committee that is going to decide what is right to say and appropriate to say. They come from my heart. They are filtered through my brain. They are, you know, there to support a long term story that I'm sharing with the world, but mostly they're authentic. I'm not selling you stuff. I'm yeah. here to share a vision of the world that I hope is relevant for you. Even if it's not, I hope it is, but even if it's not, 
I'm having so much fun sharing the story that that's where a lot of satisfaction come from. But then if it is relevant, and often it is because I receive emails and messages from people, you know, over the years, that makes me really, really happy because some of these emails and messages are people sharing with me how something that I said, something that I did, inspired them to do things differently yeah. and change their life. Like yeah. it happened with me, with my mentors in the past. It, 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 indeed. Uh, Mauro, first thing I have to tell you um, uh, here on LinkedIn, many regards from Shelly, and she says her new fondland is three times the size of yours, Mauro. <laughs> <laughs> Then I learned from you, and that is also for all our listeners. So the first thing, you were exposed and you exposed yourself to lots of different, which I may call artistic influences. Uh, that was via your parents, but also I think you did that actively um, later on. And then the other thing, and that is now my interpretation, Mauro, you are regarding the addressee of messages like a customer. That's how it feels for me when you when you talk about it, when you say, "Who am? What is the audience? Uh, what is what is their education? What what's in their mind? Uh, what are their desires?" It sounds to me like you are applying customer centricity, also in terms of communication. Well, or or, you know, a school in Polytechnic of Milan, I study semiotic and semantic uh, with a teacher a professor coming from uh, the faculty of literature and you know that for 30 years has been teaching that we study on the books of umberto eco and a variety of other semiologists and human uh, and, and 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 expert of language and there is something that i learned back then that that's been very powerful for me Essentially, and they talk about this in the Italian version of the book. Unfortunately, I had to cut this chapter in the English version that was, you know, they want me to have a shorter version and so. But essentially, there is a specific grammar that you need to take in consideration um, when you communicate. Uh, specific elements that play together to the definition to create meaning. So when we communicate, our goal is to create something that has a meaning. We convey this meaning through the communication. And, and so the first element is the sender. Is For instance, me talking to you right now is me talking. I am the sender. I have a message. is the content of what I'm saying. And you are the receiver. There is a code that is the English language with my specific accent and also my body language. I'm moving my hands as I'm talking with you. I have a certain facial expressions and so on and so forth. Then there is a media that is essentially the uh, LinkedIn we're using right now, and yes. then the, the monitor, the screen, and then this mic, but also my troth, and all, everything this message goes through. And then finally, there is a context, is the context of the country we're in, is the context, the cultural context right now in this moment in the world, uh, many things are happening around us, and then there are noises. You know, there may be something that I would say five years ago that has, may have a completely different meaning five years later. Maybe because Black Lives Matter happened, me too, because of the war in Israel 
and Gaza happen because of noises, things that are yeah. happening that are modifying completely what I'm talking about and give a completely different message, many making it, for instance, tone deaf in some of the situation. Now, this applies also to brands. The, the, the sender could be Pepsi, the message could be live for now, enjoy the moment, enjoy life. The receiver could be the consumer, but also the customers, the shareholders, the employees of the company. They all have different kind of interests and different kind of messages they're interested on. And then there is the media that is social media, television, but also packaging, product, experience in retail, what happens when you are in a stadium, and so on and so forth. And then there is the code. The code is the words that I use to convey the message, but more and more is video, is, is, is design, is aesthetic, is, is graphic, and so on and so forth. So when I was studying that, and this is literally the foundation of communication, and I studied that when I was 18, 19 uh, at school, I realized the importance of full awareness about the power of all these elements. Yes. And the first thing was to deeply understand the person you have in front of you. So I don't apply this just in business. I apply this in my love life, in my fam with my family, with my friends. I always, always try to put myself in the shoes of these people. We call it empathy, right? The ability to put yourself in the shoes and be like, are they interested in what I'm talking about? What motivates them? What inspires them? I, I, I'm always super conscious if I'm boring people. Am I boring these people right now? And so I look at signs in their eyes, in their body language to understand if they are engaged, if they are not. In fact, when I have people in front of me and we have flexibility with time, I always tell people, you know, they call me for giving speeches or conferences. I tell them, look, I could talk about this topic for two hours or I could <laughs> talk about this topic for 30 minutes. Yeah. I'm going to read the room and on the base of how the room reacts, even usually they don't talk. The speech is often, you know, me talking with a lot of passion, but it's like this. So without then saying a word, I try to read the room and understand if they're engaged or not. So this is so important. There are so many people that are so focused on what they're saying yes. and they're, they don't even think who they have in front of them. So I'm very strategic on this, the send, the receiver. I'm very strategic on, on the code, the code. So the way I dress when I talk to people, if I am in a boardroom asking millions of dollars of investments, I'm going to dress eventually more conservative than if I am in a, on the stage of the business forum of a business forum with thousands of CEOs in front of me, where I already have credibility, I'm there to inspire them and eventually shock them a little bit. And so I go, <laughs> the crazy person, but I rebalance that craziness with a vernacular vocabulary that is accessible to them, that talks about business, financial value, profitability, efficiency, effectiveness. So I always play the elements of the code, both in vocabulary and in visuals, my visuals, the way I dress, the way I move my body, the, 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 the pictures I have, you know, on my back when I use a presentation yes. to play the balance. Shock, but then reassure with codes that are um, accessible to them, that are familiar to them. I wear a jacket, but crazy shoes. I, I talk about love, but as a driver of productivity. And, yeah. and so I play this game all the time. 
is the importance of code. Why too many people focus so much, so much on the message, the content, and you yeah. have all these presentations on the, the what, and they, they're not as strategic about the how you deliver the content that is as important as the what to create meaning. Because at the end of the day, that's what you're there for, to create meaningful messages to people. Yeah. And, and, and the, the, the dramatic impact you had, not only on PepsiCo, but on a whole industry, And I can say that as a, as a former member of that industry of consumer goods uh, proves you right. For me, it is really amazing to see how conscious you are even in these details. And, and Mao, that can only be done with passion. Because otherwise you 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 get crazy, right? I mean, uh, you say, "Oh my God, uh, what do I all have to uh, take into account?" You do that with passion. By the way, Mauro, we have here a comment from Deborah who says she's amazed by this authenticity, which she can feel through the screen. Uh, we have here Vasai uh, from. Uh, she says she's listening from Pakistan, so are, we are really all over the world and to 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 round it up uh Mauro I would like to tell you again a personal experience from mine reading your book and showing you by that how you only with the power of the letter make me feel and that is the scene where you describe where you and I think three friends of yours are sitting in Milan at the couch of Claudio Cecchetto, yes. who was at that time uh, a famous DJ and creative mind uh, in Milan. And you are describing this scene. You say, we the four are sitting at the court of the king of entertainment of Milan. And what do you do with me? You make me feel like I'm sitting there with you. And you do that only by the letters which I read in a book. And that is amazing, Mauro. Thank you. I, I, you know, we, we've been talking about storytelling today. And you just described, I try to put myself in the shoes of the reader to create something that, that can then have the reader feeling like if he's in my ah. shoes in that specific moment. So imagine the beauty of this exchange. When you tell me that you felt that, I had goosebumps because I wrote that hoping that I could really be meaningful and relevant to the people reading, trying to put myself in their shoes. And now, yes, by doing that, you were in my shoes in that moment 25 years ago in that room. <laughs> It's 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 amazing, and I also, I, I I I feel what also what it, what it means for you is also the reason why I tell you that. Eh? It's it's a detail, but uh, that that's how it you made me feel. Now, and, and look, this is a book, and obviously you know there are hundreds of thousands of people that read the book, so you cannot really do this you know person by person uh, with a kind of accuracy. But this is so important when instead you are in a room and you have four people in front of you 
you have your CEO or you have your assistant or your team, you know, a team member or a peer or a customer. When they feel that you care, that you are really there trying to do something in an authentic way, as Deborah was saying, for them, with them, together, you're not there for your personal branding. You're not there to sell them stuff to make money for you and for your company. You're there to do something great together, something that can really create value for the, the two of us, the four of us, the five of us in, in the room. But in general, what people really love usually is something bigger than them. Like, oh, we're doing something big. That's really so powerful. You know, a purpose that transcends the personal interest of the people involved is usually very inspiring. So if you are able to do that by really putting yourself in their shoes and really showing that you care, people will love it. And, you know, now going back to the way you started this conversation today with Indra mentioning the interview, you know, people love Mauro. I think what people love is the fact that I authentically care. And again, I need to thank my parents uh, because that's what they told me. I was just, I thought it was just how the world was run. I, you know, this kindness and this caring and the fact that you should be a good person. And I just thought that this was the world. And then I realized that it's not. And so by doing something as simple as caring about other people that doesn't require an extra effort, it's just a filter that you put in your mind. Um, it's magic what can happen because people feel it and then they care back. They care back. And when they don't, whatever. You know, you cannot have everybody caring, but at least they will be like, you know what? I don't give a shit, but that guy is a nice guy. Yeah, <laughs> and, and that's what helped me also, you know, now going back to numbers and productivity, that helped me so much yeah. because even the people... They were not in the 10% of co-conspirators. Yes. They always understood that I was a guy. And then it was not myself anymore, just myself, but my team, because I shaped my team with those kind of values, is a team of people that care, that are nice people, that are trying to do the right thing for the company and for the world. And we may be accused sometimes of naivete. We may be accused of other things, but usually the team is loved by the rest of the organization because they feel that we care about them, about what we do, and about what we are, the people we serve. It's the three dimensions of love. The subtitle of the book, The Human Side of Innovation, the subtitle is People in Love with People, talks about these three dimensions of love. Love for the people you serve, so you really try to do something extraordinary for them. It's not about growing the business. It's about creating amazing value for people out there, customers, consumers, users. It's love for what you do. It's the passion. It's, I was talking earlier about the fun, right? The fun, in, even in the, the way I manage social media. But mostly it's the fun in the projects, in everything we do. That's the love for what you do that gives you resilience, courage, and the ability to passionately move towards any kind, you know, against uh, any kind of roadblock, coming over any kind of roadblock and difficulty. And finally, the love for the people that surround you, bringing people with you, caring about them, understanding that, by the way, you cannot do everything by yourself. You need to bring people with you. It's not a one woman or one man show, it's a team collective effort. And if you care for others, they will care back and together you can change the world. 
amazing. And, and again, Mauro, we are doing what every legendary TV broadcast show is uh, uh, used to do. We are going over time. <laughs> <laughs> I also, I'm thankful for every second of and every minute of Mauro time, just to be clear. I also love, again, this willingness of you to do this provocation. What do I mean with that? It's a business book. It's a book written by a top executive of a world, of a global world-class company. And this book is talking in the title about love. Now, if you ask me from the top of my head, if I am aware of any other uh, person in your position doing that, I'm not aware. Yeah. Um, and and this is and I hear that from our dialogue, you like these provocations, right? And you like these. But, these but, but but it's very important. Again, I you know I want to emphasize this. If it's just provocation, for the sake of provocation, is not gonna work. And you know, in another dimension, when you are called to a company to disrupt to change, to provoke, and the CEO that is calling you in or the business leader that is calling you to his team or her team is telling you, just go, provoke, disrupt, because I'm protecting you, because the company won't understand what you're saying. You just go and change. Yes. If you just do that, if you just provoke, if you just disrupt, you're going to destroy. Instead, you need to provoke and disrupt in a meaningful way, bringing people with you by building bridges versus destroying bridges. And so that's why it's always a, you know, playing the balance between provocation, disruption, and then giving them a hand, giving them something they're more familiar with and reassuring them that yes, we're here to disrupt together and build together. And we're not here for me to disrupt and destroy. Yeah. Thank you. Can I put it in these words, Mauro? Serve something which they do not expect, also to get their attention, right? Yes. To get them, hey, wait a minute. What, what is he talking about? Say again. It's, it's human nature. Like animals, our brain essentially builds a series of shortcuts of things that we already know. So we stop paying attention in front of things that we're familiar with simply because of efficiency of how our brain works because there is not enough capacity to store all the information we are exposed to every day. Yeah. So when you change what happened in front of you, even in a normal process, there is something, wait a second, is the meeting that I have every single day, this guy now is talking about love or he's talking about something you don't expect, boom. Now the, the, the brain pay attention. So yes, it's also that, yes. And with that, uh, Mauro, also here from Deborah, uh, again, excellent tip. Generally care about the people you serve. Thank you, Mauro, for this. And yeah, thanks also, Deborah. Thanks to, to all uh, our listeners. And thanks to you, Mauro, because especially what you were talking about now, again, the last couple of minutes, helps us as consultants because we do have from time to time, this 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 impulse to to come with the provocation, yeah? also out of a bit uh, frustration, 
And thank you very much for this element of, 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 of constructiveness. Because even if the CEO or owner of the company we consult uh, has fully our back, we would not move a millimeter with, uh, with only provocation. Yes. Thanks so much for that. Yeah. Mauro, again, we could do, <laughs> we could indeed do a hundred, hundred of live sessions about so many things. I'm, I'm just amazed. I'm still in the process of, of taking it all in. Uh, this is, by the way, the same uh, with your book. Um, uh, sure, I did read it in one go a uh, couple of weeks ago, uh, but I come back to it yeah, again and again and again. And as we both know, these are the best books. Yeah? Talking, uh, talking about Umberto Eco, how often did you read the same book of Umberto Eco on uh, different yeah. occasions? There's I always that... time to learn. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Quite a couple <laughs> of times. Thank you so much, Mauro. And... Uh, Hoping to see you soon, uh, meet you soon also physically. I know you are uh, in Europe uh, regularly for obvious reasons. And with that, thanks to you, thanks to all our listeners, I would now take us from the live stream. So I go on end stream. Thank you. And thanks to all the listeners as well. Thanks for joining our conversation. To learn more about Unbossing, visit www.unbossing.co or follow us on LinkedIn at The Unbossing Company. See you on the next episode. Bye.